0: welcome to the lentil intervention podcast talking all things movement whole food nutrition and environmental wellness with your hosts ben and emma hello everybody and welcome to another episode where we bring you discussions that generate the awareness on very topical issues that really we should all be well informed on and this episode is certainly no exception my name is ben adelberg coming to you from auckland
1: and my name's Emma Strat, coming to you from Dina.
0: right so now before we introduce to you our next guest we first want to say that this being episode number 14 you have not missed an episode since the awesome chat we had with Brad Dixon a few weeks ago but rather we have skipped a few weeks and that will now be part of the flow when we first started we thought we'd aim for an episode say every two, three weeks, but we've somehow managed to deliver 13 successive weeks. Now that, especially for me in New Zealand, life is back to normality. Uh, We need to work around both Emma and my super busy schedules, as well as that of our guests. So from here on forward, make sure you subscribe to the show. Follow our social media on either Instagram or Facebook. And you'll know as soon as each new episode is live. So Emma, who have we got on today?
1: All right, our guest today is scientist Gerard Wedderburn Bishop. Now, until 2010, Gerard worked as a principal scientist with the Queensland government where his team monitored broad scale deforestation. And we'll actually be talking to the causes of this um, today. Now, Gerard is a superbly Knowledgeable and super busy human. At the moment, he's working for the World Preservation Foundation, currently involved in some really exciting projects, which we'll chat about today, and also acts as a director of Replant Byron. Joe um, does a brilliant job at communicating environmental issues with his presentation entitled Appetite for Destruction which discusses how food could make or break our world. Now this is a really important presentation and this is where I first met Gerard at one of his um, talks. So we are absolutely thrilled to have such a wealth of knowledge on the show today. So Gerard, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Emma, and hi Ben. Now Gerard, this
1: is
0: um, you know really well timed because a very recent guest, Dr. Mike Joy, from New Zealand, spoke a little bit about the effects of deforestation, especially on water quality. But just the past few days here in in, uh, parts of New Zealand, we've had an absolute deluge, and that has once again reared the ugly head of another effect of logging, and that is forestry forestry slash. So before we get into this whole conversation about deforestation and so on, Gerard, let's start off from the beginning. Please tell us a little bit about your background, what you studied, and what inspired you to take this path.
2: Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, yeah just to to give your listeners a, a bit of background on me, um, after a, a long career in remote sensing science in federal and state government, I ended up with a queensland group um, well resourced group doing a monitoring of of deforestation, deforestation and uh, and vegetation across queensland. Mm-hmm. we um, our whole purpose was to settle the argument between the developers and the conservationists as to how much clearing was going on in Queensland. And it turned out to be ex- extremely <laughs> huge amounts of clearing. But um, over a period of uh, years, we, we we took all the satellite image that was uh, imagery that was available, a Landsat satellite, and we built up a picture of now more than 30 years of deforestation in Queensland. Uh, to uh, a, a very accurate level and it's probably the most accurate data in, in Australia um, but that's important because Queensland's home to about uh, three quarters or more of Australia's tree clearing so uh, it's it's great it was really good to get a picture of of uh, what was happening in Queensland, we had a team of really well resourced. We had a team of over a dozen people, and we crawled across the countryside. We we wore out a four wheel drive every year, uh, ground truthing our satellite imagery. But um, the the figures, um, if you like, I will go into some of them now. The figures yeah. are just staggering. Um, you, you might you might have noticed when you see a new suburb. For example, we all live in cities. So mm. when you see a new suburb develop, um, it might be uh, beside the road, and you and you think to yourself, "My God, that used to be trees; it's all gone now." And it, and it might be, say, a, a square kilometre, one kilometre by another kilometre by by kilometre, and you think to yourself, "Wow, that's a lot of trees." But um, the amount of clearing that's going on in Queensland still is about uh, 400,000 hectares per year. Which I'll break that down for you. That comes to uh, more than a thousand hectares a day, 1,100 hectares a day, which is about two and a half kilometres long and five kilometres in the other direction. That's that's 11 square kilometres a day. So every day, every wow. day we're clearing the equivalent of several suburbs that is out just... in the bush. I, I, it's totally hidden and and no is there has, a
0: particular part of queensland that's more prevalent so say northern queensland or is this across the board
2: yeah um what's been happening is that um the clearing was initially at, in back in the 80s it was initially from the darling downs out towards the west mm-hmm. um and then up into the desert uplands and and now into the reef catchments the the um uh, the Burdekin and the Fitzroy catchments. There's a little bit of clearing on the Cape, but it's much poorer soils, much much uh, uh, lesser productivity. So, um, the Mulga, of course, was the was the um, and the Brigalow. Those are the two bi- bio, uh, biomes that that were particularly looked at because of the rich soils. But um, over that period, over 30 years, we've been clearing that. On average, 11 square kilometres per day, and on average, more than half of that is is virgin bush. That's um, old growth. So the rest of it was regrowth, and 90 plus percent of it was for grazing pasture. So for beef or sheep production. So uh, you know, given that that's three quarters of Australia's land clearing, that's gobsmacking. That that bring that means that. Australia or Queensland is up there uh, in relation to say Brazilian land clearing mm. you 've got more than more than half the amount of the area of, of clearing that they do there. by the way i 'll just go into a little bit about land clearing. Australians are, are amazing people. We invented the, the most destructive methods for land clearing there are, and it was in back in the day in the '50s it was too. track crawler tractors and a big chain between them or or rope or uh, that kind of thing it was weighted down and these things crawled forward at walking pace and they just stripped the countryside um now of course we do it with two of the biggest bulldozers you can find d9s which are uh 50 tons each and bigger and um the chain between them um, is is usually about hundred meters long. Each link of the chain is is a bit too heavy for your eye to lift mm-hmm. um, and, and these things are, can can be also weighted down in the middle by a big steel ball to keep the the, the killing height if you like, of the chain at, at about waist height above the ground so these these bulldozers and that 's a scene to 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 imagine i 'll just paint a, a picture for you. These two huge bulldozers go flat chat. So the roar of these huge diesel engines is, is there. The the chain behind them is clank clank clanking like a like a huge chain would do. It's the the trees are cracking and breaking and smashing and 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 thumping on the ground. The the wildlife of course is is totally disrupted. If the, if there's a uh, a lot of birds around, which there usually are, the shrieks of the corellas and the cockatoos is just ear splittering and you add that all together and and, you know animal scattering woolly nilly but it's it's a real spectacle and this is extremely effective in in killing uh, forests we invented it it's now being used in the south of brazil in the in the subtropics there in what's called the cerrado which is home to now the the world's uh, largest clearing area all for um, large scale soy and and maize production for um, well actually for mainly for export to to feed livestock and uh, china 's a big customer of theirs so um, yeah this this tree clearing business is is an awe, it it's awe inspiring so we 're crawling across the countryside and um, as it happened as it happened uh, my group um, used to, well, probably still do take about half a million dollars in funding from uh, Meat and Livestock Australia mm. and uh, that, that money funds various research projects uh, and because we had a, a, a group of some of the best pasture agronomists and climate experts um, in, in Queensland that was that sort of, you know the long paddock website uh, if you go onto that it's, it's a forecasting website for farmers, it's really quite good but Um, our group was oriented towards supporting the farmers. So um, they all knew my views about all this clearing, but I I discovered about 10 years ago that some of my staff even had been working on this report that was a greenwash of the beef industry. It it argued that since the the central Queensland uh, forests weren't, weren't being burned so often, um, they were, the trees were thickening and also because the at that time the rate of deforestation was dipping was going down they argued that this the uh, Queensland beef industry was carbon neutral <laughs> anyway I read this thing and I, I stormed into my boss um, he wasn't there um, I then stormed into his boss and the director she wasn't there um, so I left and I penned a, a, a long email and then uh, left, and that was the last I saw of Queensland government. So, mm-hmm. since then, um, I've been, uh, you know, that sort of destruction, 11 square kilometres a day, or, or, and 90-something percent of that for, for beef production, it's, it's breathtaking. It, it makes you think, what on earth are we doing to our planet? How can we possibly keep this going? And, and it's... it's we can't.
1: We can't, absolutely.
2: Clearly, we, we can't. We, we, are, we are now reaching the point where, you know, amongst the literature, they're talking about ecological collapse. Mm. Um, with climate change, they're talking about even the Amazon turning to, to Savannah, because of the changed water cycles. Yeah,
0: I just, I just want to ask something here because <laughs> I'm just angry. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you you jump straight into it, and 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 the figures are just staggering, and I'm just angry hearing this. How do you cope seeing this every single day, and and yeah. and for a long period of time? Now, the other the other thing I want to join as part of this question as well is, we, you know, there's a lot of. Um, I guess, anger in the world and objection to the burning of of the Amazon forest and, um, you know, Southeast Asia, the destruction that these palm plantations are causing, you know, causing, um, you know, loss of biodiversity, animals and so on. Yet, how come we don't have any uh, objection or uproar or anything like that to what's happening in Australia's own backyard is it is it the, the lack of awareness is it because it's literally out in the in the middle of nowhere you know why why do we not know about this happening right in Australia and mm. for me to get angry just hearing this as a once off i want to do something about it already. so why why are we not hearing about
2: this yeah you, look you're absolutely right man it's 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 something that's been going on out in the bush we don't see it mm. um, in fact, when you when you drive out in the bush, they usually leave a buffer along the roads. In fact, it is a public land. It's it's a road uh, uh, which you know it's not private property. It's road, and and people don't see beyond that. Yeah. But when you do see beyond that, you see that the, the satellite images tell the story. It, it's wholesale clearing. It's it's just dramatic. But we live in cities, largely, so, so we don't mm. see it. The only group that has been keeping the, the the guys honest is the Wilderness Society, and they've got some amazing drone footage mm. up on YouTube. Uh, you can Google that and, and just have a look at, at the dozers at work um, and how they, they're just flattening. Um, when I... <laughs> My informa- the, the information that, that my group produced was actually instrumental in Queensland tightening up its tree clearing laws, um, which was really good. But just before, in the years before that, that led up to that, there was panic clearing with farmers expecting the tightening up and then the tightening, then a change of government. So it eased up again. And so um, it just went a lot of things became self accessible Like, for example, a lot of uh, rampant tree clearing was done in the name of, of thinning. So if they leave one tree in every 300, they call that thinning and it's self-assessable. So, you know, um, no one wants to upset the farmers. Uh, no one wants to be seen to up, be upsetting the farmers. And so it's it's actually a, a, a crying shame what we've done. Um, years ago, when we had pasture agronomists whose job it was to for example, set conditions for government leases, which most of this land is is actually government land, leased to graziers. And in the, back in the day, um, up to about the 70s, there were conditions on those leases that required the landholder to actually clear the land. And it was called development. And that was the mindset then. Um, the farmers cleared the land with... With the view that they were doing exactly the right thing for their family, for the community, for the country, for uh, feeding the cities, for the for the nation. But now we know differently. Now we of we course that- now
0: now now with what we know, you know, mm. there's a lot of other bad habits we used to have. You know, smoking used to be good for you. Drinking Coca-Cola was good for you. But you know, <laughs> we've changed our, our our opinions on that. And and why are we not changing our opinions on this?
2: Yeah, no, that's right. It's because people don't know. They're largely totally unaware of what, what's happening beyond the, the city fringes. You know, we stick to the coast. We holiday on the coast. We live on the coast. We never go inland. But if you, if you do venture inland, um, you it's just staggering. It's just gobsmacking. In the last 10 years since I left, the focus of the tree clearing has gone to the reef catchments, to the Burdekin and the Fitzroy. And that's been an incredible tragedy. Um, It was well recognised in those days that the biggest pollutant of the Great Barrier Reef, the the worst threat to the reef, um, is the fine pollutants. The the, the sediment that was washed out of the rivers, Mm. the the very fine uh, pollutants that stay in suspension. So it's washed out of the rivers, it gets... Plunged out into the barrier reef lagoon, and it settles on the reef, or, or it covers the reef in this fine silt, which depresses the the amount of sunlight that reaches the corals, and it allows it it, it suppresses their their uh, vitality, so the crown of thorns go nuts, etc. So this was seen as the major um, killer of the barrier reef. Now they see the major killer as the Uh, temperatures from from climate change and also um, the acidity in the future Mm. so sediment is still the biggest killer of the reef and and what they were doing in the in the Burdekin and the Fitzroy and other catchments that funneled out onto the barrier reef was clearing like crazy you know the bulldozers they don't give a damn about the water courses they just the are just flat out full steam ahead they just uh the the creeks the water courses are just flattened along with everything else mm-hmm. and and 70 percent they do a reef report every year and 70 percent of the of the sediment that goes out on the barrier reef is from grazing lands not from sugarcane or other agricultural lands so so grazing is the big one and it, it it's it's self-assessable there's no government requirement to uh, to leave the water courses uncleared for example or to or to stop clearing um, in in these reef catchments. It's all um, a voluntary code that. Um, some, I, what I read was 17% of the industry are actually abiding by the code. The rest oh, of them gosh. don't give a don't give a damn. So um, yeah, we're trashing our planet. This is an, just an example, right? Mm. It's it's a it's a it's a glaring example to me because I've seen it. I've heard it. I've witnessed it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, but to most people, it still doesn't exist. It's it's out there. It's it's this, this nebulous thing that's out there that we know, oh, we need to take care of our planet. But, you know, what amazes me is uh, we we're at a meeting, for example, the last meeting we had, board meeting of the um, uh, replant Byron. We had about uh, 20 people sitting around this boardroom table. We had amazing gathering of people and the, and of course the um the activists down that way are, are very active and they're very green and our ambition is to plant 1.8 million trees and the reason for that is that is the number of trees that will soak up the the um that will balance the emissions from the land from agriculture within that shire and 1.8 million trees and everyone's saying, wow, 1.8 million, this is huge, this is wonderful. And then I did the sums and I, and I got back to them at the last meeting and I said, look, 1.8 million trees is wonderful. And, and we had our first planting. We planted something like 2,500 trees. You know, the land's donated, the money's donated. It's, it's all really good stuff, people are patting themselves on the back. A 100 people turned out to do it and we had a party. That's brilliant. But what I told them was this. million trees is actually cleared in less than one week in Queensland.
1: Always playing catch up if we have that mindset with things. Uh I was reading a statistic the other day that said um, globally we cut down 15 billion trees each year. So, you know, we can do all the replanting that... We can, but we're always going to be playing catch up if we don't actually address the actual problem. But we do
0: need to start somewhere. I mean that that can that can generate. I agree, but you know it, it can generate momentum as well and say, "Oh, okay, absolutely!" You know, but don't
1: you know. greenwash the no the, oh. the problem.
0: Yeah, no, no. I, I agreed, agreed. It's and 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 at the same time, and it's becoming an expression used quite quite often now. But it's it's like you know. The, the, the tap that, that's on and the sink's overflowing with water and all you're doing is getting a mop and a bucket as opposed to turning the tap off. So, you know, it's it's about addressing the actual root of the problem here.
2: Yeah, dead right. Dead right, Ben. And and the last figures I saw was that for every uh, tree that's planted, about 100 are chopped down. Yes. Um, thankfully, nature is doing an amazing job of trying to uh balance what we're our destruction
0: but let's not Um, forget we're we're planting a tree to replace you know represent a hundred trees say but what are we doing about the rest of the biodiversity you know the birds the the mm. wildlife that's been destroyed forever you know Mm. um species going extinct um you know migration of 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 animals and so on and yeah it's it's it goes a lot further than
2: that yes yes which which actually leads into um the the concept of uh, planetary boundaries, mm-hmm. and um, th- this was some groundbreaking work done um, in in the last 20 years. It's been wonderful work um, out of Europe, and they and they've defined nine different areas where um, there are boundaries. We are at risk of overstepping these boundaries, and if if we overstep any one of these boundaries we risk all life on earth. And um, I'll just quickly run through them. Mm-hmm. Things like, they're, they're things like uh, greenhouse biodiversity, like you're talking about, cropland use, freshwater use, um, nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, ocean acidification, atmosphere, aerosols, stratosphere, and uh, novel poisons in the in the environment. And, it turns out that we have way overstepped two of those. Already, we have we're in the midst of the sixth great extinction. We have increased the the um, uh, the the uh, the amount of biodiversity loss to the point that it's one thousand times greater than it used to be. Um, and and what that means is that we're heading for environmental collapse. If we do nothing, if we continue to trash the forests, if we continue to trash the other environment, the other bio, uh, ecosystems, if we continue to trash the ocean like we are, uh, we're in for ecosystem collapse. Um, and the other one is is climate change. Um, sorry, sorry, no, no, it's not climate change. <laughs> it's it's actually um, nitrogen and phosphorus. And phosphorus, yeah, yeah. Um, which is amazing. Um, nitrogen is an amazing story. If <laughs> you got a minute? <laughs> uh, we, we'll, we'll give you five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, nitrogen, nitrogen is, is just astounding. It's nitrogen, if, the first level test of, of, of any food for protein content. Yeah. If you test any food for protein content, they, the first level test is nitrogen content. Mm-hmm. Because nitrogen equals protein in that sense. So the miracle of, of um, photosynthesis fixes nitrogen in the plants. So all proteins that we have in the world, all proteins come from photosynthesis and they're fixed in leaves and other parts of plants. So everyone, animals and us, all get our protein from plants. Now, um, this, the process of getting nitrogen to the, to the plants is done through an amazing uh, symphony of biota that supply it through the roots and and that we we are living in an atmosphere of nitrogen, but seventy percent nitrogen, but but the the nitrogen that the plants can use is called reactive nitrogen, and that comes basically from organisms in the soil. However, we've invented this other process that literally uh, creates uh, nitrogen reactive nitrogen fertiliser out of thin air. It's the Haber-Bosch process, and and it's been responsible for the green revolution. We've created this nitrogen fertilizer, and with that, we've been able to to uh, feed this, this um, revolution, the green revolution that's fed the world. And we've been patting ourselves on the back for that. But, of course, by doing that with, with conventional uh, agricultural methods, we're, we're trashing the soils. But that's another story. But the thing is... What we create now with uh, fertiliser from thin air is equal to all of natural, all of the natural reactive nitrogen production. So what we've effectively done is we have doubled the carrying capacity of planet Earth. That, that means that we've been able to, to support more living things that eat that protein. We've been able to support twice the amount of living things than we have in the past, purely because we've got this this nitrogen fertilizer that that now um, that that now you know feeds the crops and the crops feed the animals and we eat the animals, that sort of thing, to the point where of the mammals that live on earth, just four percent of those mammals are now li- are, 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 are wildlife, just four percent. Sixty percent of the mammals on Earth are livestock, cows and sheep and goats, etc., and thirty-six percent are humans. Right? <laughs> so ninety-six percent of all the mammals on Earth are humans and their livestock. Just four percent are wild. Still, we we've just what we've done is so unbalanced. It's... The natural order. Yeah. that this, this nitrogen pollution now now uh, threatens our very existence because what happens? Nitrogen uh, pollutes the waterways. It, it, You've right. all heard of... Through eutrophication screen, and... and yeah, 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 that's right. And then hundreds of ocean dead zones, and it goes on. And we're, we're killing our environment. Actually, another little figure from this other uh, diagram that I'm looking at now, 70% of the birds on planet Earth chickens and other poultry <laughs> 30% of wild that's, yeah so. <laughs>
0: it's 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 just it's just mind-boggling this this imbalance and and you know i mean it's it's quite ironic you talk about you know nitrogen being su- supportive and yet it's inadvertently actually the cause of like we say killing a lot of our waterways the oceans um it's it's actually creating pollution back and yeah. and and that's and that's that point of what what you say now is we've overstepped the mark the you know yes. it's not self-repairable anymore we actually yes. need to create action to drastically reverse this
2: yes exactly and if if i can get just give you a a, a quick like a what if you like a an an elevator pitch <laughs> if i can put into into a few sentences the, the real problem we have on planet earth Mm-hmm. It's that we've we've overstepped these boundaries. We're close to overstepping other planetary boundaries, like, for example, climate change, um, deforestation, uh, and a few others. Water cycles are way out. We're very close to overstepping those. What can solve those problems? And it's it's amazingly simple. Um, and it goes back to land use, which is a pretty boring topic, but. Um, it's it's basically how do we use our planet, and it's fascinating. It mm. really fascinating how we use our planet. If you look at, I'm pulling up a diagram here, but um, of the of the of the land that we use. Okay, if you take away the water, if you take away the forests that we haven't actually that we don't extract things from, if you take away the um, ice and the snow and the deserts that we don't actually use, what's left is um, its pasture, its crops, its and its um, infrastructure and cities. Okay, well, if you look at the infrastructure and cities and mining together, that constitutes less than 2% of the land that we use. So okay, when so- people
0: talk about the ill effects of mining, um, mm. You know, we haven't had a guest that's been solely a you know an expert in, in mining. But when we talk about deforestation and 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 um, and I guess the the impacts of of uh, pasture grazing, you know, uh, grazing pastures, you know, what how much of an impact does mining itself cause? But now you've pretty much answered it. It's such a um, whatever impact it's causing, it's insignificant compared to mm. the rest of of what the land is used for.
2: Exactly. And and the 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 um, the land use that's exists is pasture, is grazing pasture. Mm. In fact, three quarters of the land that we use is dedicated to grazing animals. Now, now let's think about this. Let, let's put it in the picture. So, for our for our listeners, if you and your family lived on an island, and and you knew that you were cutting down your forest too fast, you knew that you were polluting the air too fast, your water was, uh, cycles were, were crazy, you, the climate was changing, your crops were failing, you had droughts, you had uh, dead zones in your oceans, etc. How could you address that? And if you look at three quarters of your island, if that's devoted to grazing animals, you have an, an incredibly powerful tool there to address all of these issues just by saying, okay, well, what does that give us? That grazing land, what does that give us? It gives us red meat and some dairy. Some dairy comes from feedlots, but, and some dairy comes from pastures, but those pastures, what do they give us? Red meat and some dairy. So, okay, are we prepared to forego red meat and dairy to save the, save our island? And and the power of that is this: if you were to take three, that three quarters of the island and turn it back to wildlife habitat, turn it back to forest, turn it back to to uh, uh, what it used to be, you would do several things in one blow. You would um, you would fix up the climate because you're uh, you're, you're, you're drawing down actually decades of, of carbon dioxide emissions mm-hmm. so immediately you roll back the climate problem you, you you'd also fix the biodiversity crisis the extinction crisis because you're immediately providing all that habitat for wildlife you immediately fix the the water cycle uh, process because forests create their own water cycles they drive they're the engine that drives the water cycle. So the rain gets steady again. You don't you, you stop having these wild droughts and floods. And and nitrogen, of course, you know, all those animals on the land, they're not producing the nitrogen. So um, that's in a nutshell what we're talking about here. That island is planet Earth, and that's how we use it. Three quarters of it is for grazing animals. So can we, we we humans, get off red meat, can we get off dairy? and and in doing that we can change our world we can fix those crises that are imminent fix the two planetary boundaries that we we've overstepped and fix the other planetary boundaries that we're close to overstepping it's a powerful powerful thing we can do it we any of us can do it we just need to change our diet well the three of us here i think we we all know we can do it <laughs>
0: um yes. but it's it's i guess you know it it seems so simple, it really does. And yet, are we are a lot of good people, good minds with good good resources, taking? How do I put this? Not the incorrect approach, but you know, there, there's so many angles to this. You know, um, you know the rationale for 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 um, reducing meat and dairy intake. Um, you know but if it's really if, if a lot of the focus is on the actual land the land use and, and and the clearing of what actually supports life on this planet I mean growing up as a kid at school we always knew trees give us oxygen trees give us life yes. why is something so fundamental are we missing the point now to some degree that it's not more of a global effort why are we focusing our energy into so many other areas that are really a small facet of the problem? Yes, absolutely. is it? Is it? Is, does it go back to the whole awareness thing? I've written that here in my notes in big and bold. Is it the lack of awareness because out of sight, out of mind? You're driving on these big highways. They leave these little buffers, so you're surrounded by trees. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so scenic, and yet you're yeah. not actually looking beyond that, where that's
2: where the the the, the horrors are. Mm, absolutely. It, it's it's what we're doing to our planet that is largely unseen or it's just, if it's slow, so slow that we're just not noticing it. Mm. A few years back, my wife and I went to, for a, to, back to the UK, our first trip over there, and we did spend three weeks went up to the Scottish Highlands. And we're looking at this wild and beautiful and amazing landscape in the Scottish Highlands. And I was talking to some guy who who was involved with forests over there. I said, forests up here? He said, yes, the, the name for Scotland used to be Caledonia, which meant forest. Huh. And, and before humans got at it in a big way, that whole of northern uh, Britain was forested. Same with uh, Ireland. It's, it's now covered with sheep. And, of course, sheep eat anything. So if you've got a little seedling, a tree, that actually happens to, to escape and, and, and springs up, chomp, it's gone. If you have sheep on the land, chomp, it's gone. It's 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 the way to change the land use. So, you know, that's a bleak and beautiful landscape. Yeah. But, wow, wasn't it, it – it used to be tall forest. Well, pretty much so, what New Zealand was as well in most yes, parts. Yes, yeah. exactly right. Yeah, so – You know, this virus, for example, is showing us that we have, and and a lot of long-time ecologists are saying exactly this, we have overstepped nature. We have trodden on nature way too far. We have pushed it back so that the boundary between the wild animals and ourselves is way too close. We're too close to animals. And we must, uh, and, and it's not only that, you know, three quarters of all the tra- communicable diseases have been zoonotic. they come from animals, mm. and and the if you wanted to create an environment that's a it's a it's a perfect petri dish to create these sort of nasty um, uh, viruses, it's factory farming. We we drip feed them uh, these antibiotics just to keep them healthy. It's it's not too much that it kills all the antibiotics but what it does it creates the antibiotic resistant bacteria and other uh, greeblies (laughs) and and that comes through and and that's what we're doing we we have we have so mistreated the animal world and the and the natural world this is this is payback this is kickback we know now or it's in our face We, we can't deny it anymore we've got to step back from nature we've got to hand back some of the planet to the wildlife which is after all it's it's the web of life that keeps us all alive you know uh, it was famously stated that um if the bees were to to die off then we would have just a few seasons and then all the humans would be dead Mm. bees are not the only pollinators of course but that's that's how strong it is it's it's we are. We we live in harmony with them, and we and we can't trash them like we have been doing.
1: Exactly, yeah, can't agree more. Um, and that kind of brings us to the important work that you're currently doing with the World Preservation Foundation. Um, so tell us a little bit about that very exciting stuff.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, this is this is really good. I, it, the 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 amount of documentaries that have come out lately, just in the last couple of years about this very thing about how our what we have on our plate every day how that impacts our planet and ourselves our health um it's it's amazing to see the number of of documentaries on that um and um i've been involved now through the world preservation foundation writing a book that's to be released with the documentary coming out and we hope september called Eating Our Way to Extinction. Um, there's going to be this this book, um, which is environmental and health and transcripts of interviews with luminaries all around the world. Um, there's also going to be uh, meal planners and helpful stuff that will help people make that transition uh, to plant eating rather than animal eating. Um yeah there's going to be lots of online resources. Um, you know we we've just finished writing a huge mythbuster section, for example
1: right. and, and, is very this comprehensive. Going
2: to, and is this
0: going to have a focus on sort of this part of the world, Australia or is it going to be more of a global
2: um sort of you know direction? Yeah, it's definitely global yeah um it, it's looking at um they they actually have some footage from Brazil from the deforestation over there mm-hmm. um and and they look at, for example, salmon farming in uh, northern Europe, um, and the impact of that. They look at oh, a lot of different things. But um, I've seen an early cut of the film. Um, James Cameron is now an executive director, so um,
1: oh, exciting!
2: Yeah, <laughs> another yeah. big one Many coming in. The out. Big ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and hopefully we. Hopefully, it will be on Netflix. Um, if, if oh, um, brilliant. So, well so we' seen how effective
0: one. that was for the game changers. so this would certainly mm. pave the way for for you know this whole awareness we've been talking about. this mm-hmm. would hopefully really really generate that.
2: Mm. Mm. yeah, so um that that's that's the big thing there, and we've been we've been busily working away um doing lab experiments which we show with different gases and how that. Impacts the uh, the the ice sculpture melting, you know, all sorts of things cool. like that. Wow. <laughs> um, and and yeah, it's 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 fairly in your face. It's it's just a collection of interviews with um, with the experts in their fields, and the the evidence is is no longer up for debate. Um, the talk that I give, for example, um, it used to be called eating our way uh, uh, what is it what was it appetite for destruction appetite for destruction that's right <laughs> yeah well now it's called eat plants plant trees survive and thrive and
1: nice I like
2: it <laughs> <laughs> yeah to the point yeah. yeah stop beating around the bush yeah. <laughs> excuse the yeah. pun <laughs> yeah that's right but I, but in it um, I give a whole lot of information and it's it's all none of it is controversial anymore mm-hmm. um it used to be that if you wanted to uh, connect the dots relating to diet and the environment, you'd have to, you know, dig through uh, non-government organisation, non-peered review or grey literature. Um, but now there's there's just a, an avalanche of good peer-reviewed science that backs up everything that we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, the fact is now that. The fact is that what we eat has more impact on our planet than anything else we do. It's not our iPhones, it's not a batteries for our cars, it's what we eat. Yeah. So, so if you want really want to make a difference, that's where to do it.
0: Now, and now I've heard you present um, one of your presentations. You talk about animal agriculture being, um, if not one of, but the greatest source of short-lived carbon producers and, and methane. Um, mm. And the problem with this is that it's generally underreported. Um, and, and so therefore, you know, because you talk about information now being more readily available and yet there's are still, you know, who is it that's underreporting and why? You know, why, why are a lot of these figures being underreported? Why are, they, why are we being misled? Why is it being obscured? Uh, you know, the impact of of these
2: emissions? That's a really good question, Ben, and um, we've been struggling with that. Um, The thing is that there's a number of highly respected uh, people in the climate science area who think that focusing on anything other than carbon dioxide is is, uh, the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. They believe that, well, the thing is that... um, well, to give you a bit of uh, climate science, carbon dioxide is a nasty gas. Um, and it, and if, you, if you burn fossil fuels, you send it up in the atmosphere. Half of the, of the CO2 in the atmosphere is gone after about 30 years. And then it tails off so that 10% of that, uh, after 1,000 years, 10% of the initial emission is still in the air. So it's that long, nasty tail that that is the problem with carbon dioxide. Um, so that's why they're they worried. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're thinking they're thinking now that um, if we want to care if we care about the the atmosphere in, for our children and grandchildren, we we should. That's what we should be focusing on. So they do they do tricky things like they say, okay, let's treat methane as a pulse, and let's say that a constant methane emission. Uh, will be will be a pulse, it, and it's always there, and it doesn't do a lot of warming, <clears throat>, but it's it's always there in the atmosphere. The trouble with that is that methane's emissions and methane atmospheric concentration has tripled in the time when uh, atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide has gone up 40 percent only. So methane's gone up three times, 300 percent, mm. and me- methane's gone after about 10 years, right? So they see that and they say, short term, it's no problem; it's only lasts a decade, da da da. However, um, and, and 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 scientists have been grappling with how do we compare the apples and oranges? We've got gases that last such different times in the atmosphere. How do we compare them? And and this is an, this is where the the heart of the ongoing debate is. If you do your greenhouse accounting, you you'll, you'll account for the warming of those gases over a short period, that will amplify the effects of the short-term gases like methane. If you do your accounting over a long period, that uh, strengthens the effects of the long-term gases like carbon dioxide. What they've chosen, what the IPCC have chosen is 100 years standard. This is the standard that everything's compared with. Well, the problem is that 100 years is way too long because what's going to happen is that climate change is going to come up and grab us within the next decades, not 100 years. Mm. So um, what I was a co-author of um, Beyond Zero Emissions Land Use Plan for Australia, and what we did there... um, in fact, it's a, it's a, I can recommend, highly recommend that. It's really good reading because I read it. And um, <laughs> Well, we weren't going to ask about that, actually, so it's quite that <laughs> you brought it up. <laughs> but what we did is we looked at um, the, the impact of agricultural and, and livestock issue, uh, emissions over a standard 100 years, and then we looked at their impact over 20 years. In other words, the emissions from livestock how are they going to affect the the warming of um the, the emissions over the next 20 years and and the results are dramatic um over over 100 years we kept, oh, we, we did some tricky things we we um, pulled apart we teased apart the data on deforestation and we attributed that to agriculture and we also did we counted some of the gases that are not counted in in official inventories but we had the data for and we included that and over a 100 year accounting it turns out that agriculture is responsible for just over a third of australia's emissions but we looked at over 20 years and we found that over half of the national emissions over half of the national emissions come from agriculture and just under half come from livestock because livestock produce so much methane they they produce uh, there's this other category called, category called prescribed burning of savannas which is just pasture maintenance it uh, it emits a lot of methane they don't carbon count the carbon dioxide because that sunk the following year but it emits a lot of methane it lots emits a lot of Another uncounted gas called carbon monoxide, which leads also to tropospheric ozone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I won't go into that. But um, if you include the deforestation there as well, we found that that um, at almost half of the Australian emissions over that twenty-year period, right? Mind we're not forgetting about what happens after then. Mm-hmm. But over twenty years, almost half the national emissions are livestock emissions. Now. Um, that is dramatic. And, and what happened was that Beyond Zero Emissions, the board, looked at that. And they were just about to have a change of CEO. And they all looked at this and they said, this is awful. <laughs> and then they decided, no, this is too much. We can't upset the farmers. And so they dropped it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it's there. You can get it on the – you can download the report on the Beyond Zero Emissions website um, and you can see what I'm talking about, but um, it is dramatic if you look at the effects the impact of this year's emissions on a short term like the next decade or two, agriculture plays a much much greater role than if you look a century ahead and and people that it's largely unappreciated. The fact that the the figure that most people go to back to now is the FAO um, committee report (laughs) they involved all the livestock sectors and a bunch of other people and uh, the industry and and they decided that livestock are only responsible for 14 and a half percent of global emissions well that's using some that's using 100 year accounting and it's using some tricky figures regarding deforestation so anyway um the fact is that there will always be this argument about livestock emissions because it's apples and oranges. You can't mm-hmm. compare methane to carbon dioxide, and if you try and do that, um, and people like us have done it in the in the Beyond Zero Emissions report, if you try to do that, people will always take pot shots at it, which is exactly what happened to uh, a paper by Goodland and Anhang. Um, they they did a he was with World Bank um, PhD. Um, he, he wrote a, an article for World Watch Magazine that said that. That um, uh, more than half of the global emissions come from agriculture and he used some amazing tricky things that no one else had used before and he was shot down it was unbelievable but all of what he said is actually arguable so if you're talking uh, if you're talking emissions the take home from all of that is that over the short term agriculture is the most effective thing we can do to slow down the warming in the short term Mm. if you want to and it, but it also it's it's a double it's a double whammy it's amazing in the short term if you if you were to slash methane from agriculture and fracking by the way, but if you were to slash methane and agricultural emissions, it would slow down the climate change straight away and if you were to turn back those pastures to uh, woodlands and trees and forests, it would s- draw down several decades of emissions so you've, you've got the short-term covered and you've got the long-term covered agriculture and land use is an amazing fertile area for solving climate change and hasn't been explored anywhere near where it should be mm.
0: you talk about or um, well, you mentioned you know upsetting the farmers but in terms of who needs to change is it the farmers or is it the consumer
2: that needs to change Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, farmers are, are amazing people. I've met a lot of farmers, and they are the most resilient, most mm. optimistic. Um, they are amazing. They they roll with the markets. They roll with the uh, the the droughts and the floods. Yeah. They 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 suffer all sorts of pressures, and and they're still happy, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> largely. Although uh, farmer suicide's been going up, but but in any case the the if people change what they eat, farmers will follow they 're not going to produce beef if no one 's eating it it 's yeah. not that they love producing producing cows for slaughter they don 't they just do it because that 's what they 've always done but if if there 's no money in it anymore they won 't do it <laughs> and I think that 's a key because that 's you
0: know in new zealand the the dairy um, Industry is so well protected because it's it's you know it's a massive contributor to to our exports. Um, you know Fonterra is one of the world's biggest dairy producers. Uh, mm. You know th- there's a lot of protection where the money is, lamb and beef as well. Um, so you know, like you say, the underreporting, um, the protection, the 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 loathe to change. It's at the top, but farmers themselves, the the actual the people on the ground, so to speak, they'll, they'll go with the flow, won't they? They'll go where the demand is. So yes. really, the demand needs to start coming from us. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: So when it comes to the consumer then, what do you think is the main problem to be addressing? Do you think it's just a matter of education or are there some more novel approaches that we should be taking to get everyone on board?
2: mm yeah, look, that's a really good question, Emma, and it's not one that I'm qualified to answer, really. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's the a people, hard one, isn't it?
2: The, the people I meet who have made big changes in their diet, um, the reason that most people do it and keep doing it is is for the animals, basically. Yeah. They, they've looked at those horrible videos of, of uh, mistreatment and torture of these critters and, um, realized I'm causing that. So, um, they've stepped back from it and they're the ones who made that decision and stay. It's so easy now, of course, um, to be plant-based. Look at all, look at every supermarket is, is full with, with products that are plant protein, not meat protein. Yeah you know to so,
0: use using that as an example you were at the um climate change conference i don't know when but semi recently in in durban mm. um and that's by the way is actually where i come from so i was really excited that wow. when um <laughs> you know when i saw an interview that that um you did and spoke about um the soybean um Yeah, I didn't know this, Uh, you know, the the, the big soybean production, the uh, edamame beans and so on in in the whole Kuzuru Natal region, the province that that Mm. Durban sits in. Um, And you also mentioned the the product fries, which I actually, when I say grew up on, I didn't grow up on it, eating it every day. But I recall it at its infancy, this this product that came out with one product that was this, uh, you know, meat alternative. I wasn't vegetarian even then. Um, you know, mm. we still ate meat at home, but we, we've we never been big meat eaters. But I remember this product, fries. it was this this fake poloni, you know, it was all soy-based. Yeah. And then yeah. a couple of years later, came out a, a uh, an option of a sausage or, or a burger patty. And that was it for years. And now you go in the supermarket, it's exported globally, uh, and they've got mm. a ridiculous range of of products. And, and now one of many brands out there. But, you know, I was really... Um, you had sort of mentioned. I mean, it's very specific, but you know the whole conversion of land use and and um and the ability for you know everyone thinks soybean China, you know that's where soy comes from. But you know other countries can grow a lot of these products, a lot of these crops, um, mm. and so on. So so there really are alternatives, aren't there?
2: Mm. Oh, absolutely. And and yeah, Wally Fry, he was one of the pioneers, of course, in this field. But gee, there's been some amazing develop recent developments recently. But, just to touch on on soybeans and China, mm. this is a really interesting one. China has actually been increasing the amount of forest in their own country. What happened was um, uh, three, four, five decades ago, they they got busy and they they cleared a lot of their country. and And then they had some massive uh, downpours and floods and landslips. And, and their scientists said, oh, this is because we cleared the trees. So they got into this process and then they started to get their droughts. The, the Gobi Desert was, was mm-hmm. marching uh, uh, eastward and they, they said, well, we've got to fix this. And so they had the Great Green Wall. They planted trees to stop its advancement and they planted the whole country. Their, their, their country uh, area of forest is growing like crazy. So they're really patting themselves on the back, and they have done a great job in reforestation. They've planted more trees than any other nation. But I sense a but coming along here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, the thing is that they've got enough food to feed their people, mm. but they haven't got enough feed to feed their livestock, and the amount of pigs in China has just gone through the roof. Yeah. And where they, where they get the feed for their pigs is... It's it's largely genetically modified soybean and maize, mm. and the largest exporter of that is Brazil and other uh, South American nations, and North America, by the way. Um, but that's the the largest uh, international buyer of those feed cro- of those feeds is is China, followed by Europe. So uh, China is reforesting reforesting its own country and its deforesting brazil and other south american countries so, so they look clean yeah. and green
1: on paper but they're outsourcing the
2: problem exactly yeah. so yeah. every decision we make has a global implication mm.
0: so a- this you know so this whole destruction of the amazon forest is is not even just for brazil's own needs it's it's the crops and this is what a lot of people don't understand as well, you know, when you have this whole debate about the, the lesser impact, environmental impact that general, you know, bean crops and vegetables and so on have versus, um, you know, uh, um, grazing pastures is that a big chunk of the crops are actually used for animal feed. It's not even for us. Um, yeah. You know, if the whole world went plant based overnight, we wouldn't have to destroy a single tree. Because we, we now have too much land to feed yeah. ourselves, let alone, yeah. you know, because we're now not needing to feed the animals, the cows, yes, exactly. the pigs, the the sheep, etc. So yes. it's it's such a disconnect, you know, it's, it's I mean, isn't it the West that actually caused the problem in the first place in China by introducing meat and, you know, meat consumption is great, it's good for you, it's a better source of mm. protein than soy. Um Yeah, and now, but you know, but China still has a demand for meat, so let's just, like you say, create someone, Mm. make make someone else's problem.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, about 90% of the world's soybeans are actually fed to animals, not humans. Mm. And uh, Wally Fry actually got into strife uh, some time ago for the European market uh, because uh, some of his soybean was contaminated with Brazilian soybeans oh wow which are genetically genetically modified so um yeah you've got to be if you're uh, if you're sourcing soybeans you've got to be really particular it's uh, it's difficult
0: yeah yeah jared this has been an absolutely enlightening conversation a lot of passion um we really admire you know how many years you've you've exposed yourself to so much angst with with what's happening to our planet um you know you you've certainly got to see a lot what the majority of us will never get to see um but you know you you certainly have uh, a lot of channels where you've you've sort of offered the opportunity to 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 create this awareness and and we really really look forward to so, well, the double whammy, the new book and the documentary, Eating Our Way to Extin- Extinction, uh, hopefully released in, in, what are we now, July, so a couple of months. Um, hopefully, we're not too far away from that. But um, we really want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your super busy schedule and coming onto the show.
2: It's a great pleasure, Ben. And uh, thank you, Emma, for setting this up. That's That's wonderful. And uh, if you want to do another talk after the uh, release of the documentary I'd be more than happy. We okay. would
1: absolutely love that. We look forward to part 2. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so much
1: more to talk about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much again, Gerard. We really appreciate
2: it. Terrific. Thank you.
1: And I just want to do a really quick little plug for anyone who's interested, please head to worldpreservationfoundation.org. There's a there's so many Um, marvellous handouts that you can download and and read on this further because there is a lot that we haven't touched on and it's a brilliant resource so thank you Jaren.
0: thank you for listening to the lentil intervention podcast if you found this interesting make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends